Hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Antonia Garrett-Peel, MT's Senior Staff Writer, and I'm joined by my co-host Eilish Cronin. On today's episode, we discuss CEO side gigs, why bosses love boldness, and whether it's up to senior managers to lead the charge on a return to more office time. That's all on the Leadership Lessons agenda. Now, a dimly lit club dance floor or sweaty festival throng might feel like unlikely spots from which to glimpse your boss. But for years, Goldman Sachs chief exec pursued a somewhat unconventional hobby alongside his CEO duties, moonlighting as a DJ and at one time going by the stage name DJ D Soul. David Solomon's hobby took him to the Lollapalooza Festival, Manhattan and tiki bars in the Bahamas before we heard last October that he had called time on public performances. In a statement, a Goldman spokesperson said that Solomon hadn't publicly DJed an event in well over a year and that, quote unquote, music was not a distraction from David's work, the media attention became a distraction. It had also been reported by the Financial Times that Solomon's DJing had attracted scrutiny from Goldman's board. We obviously don't know the ins and outs of that decision, but it did get us thinking about when it is acceptable for a CEO to have a side gig. I spoke to a number of experts to try and answer this question, among them Ben Renshaw, he's an executive coach and the author of How to Be a CEO. He argued that an immense level of scrutiny comes with the territory of being a CEO today, as does the responsibility to be very, very sensitive to every stakeholder lens. And he pointed out that you are, after all, being paid quote-unquote, extraordinary amounts of money. He added, and I'm quoting again, as CEO, if you are gaining press attention that is not in the best interest of your company, you are out of line, no question. He advises that CEOs need to be forensic in their decision-making, take ownership of their role as custodian of their organisations, and act in its best interests. I also looked at activities that might be likely to be viewed favourably by business stakeholders, So I considered non-executive director roles, which are obviously less hobby territory and more a kind of professional side pursuit. Mark Freeburn, he's the head of the board practice at Headhunter Odgers Burnson, believes that holding a non-exec director position is generally valuable. The key factors, he said, are that you and the board are comfortable that you have the time to do it, it promotes your personal and professional development, and that the organisation in question isn't going to do anything that will create negative sentiment. I also thought it was interesting, um, Antonia, the point that you made about the impact a company's performance might have on how favourably any of these side activities are looked upon. Yes, so that was raised by Warwick Business School professor John Colley. He made the point that if things aren't going well, shareholders will expect to have kind of 100% of your undivided attention and any other side activities will become an irritation. We also talked about attitudes towards what are kind of perceived as these more sort of colourful maverick leader figures that you find in the business world. And I suggested that a bit of eccentricity doesn't necessarily always go against you. He agreed with this, but he added that that narrative too often depends on performance. And the moment things aren't going well, it sort of starts to break up, as he put it. Mm. That's when you see a lot of chief execs become kind of the fall guy in those scenarios, because there needs to be somebody who can either take the blame for or be the face of the issue. Um, I think in the case of David Solomon, perhaps there is a danger that a chief exec could become more well-known for their wacky hobby than their actual job. You know, Solomon himself is supposed to be the face of Goldman Sachs as the chief exec, but his DJing antics are also very much attached to 
that name. And I wonder if for some businesses or sectors, perhaps those chief execs with slightly left field interests that perhaps don't align with the company's image will therefore be under more intense scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that point that you said about um, becoming more well known. I do wonder how many of the people who kind of saw him perform, you know, for example, at Lollapalooza Festival, actually knew that he was the CEO Mm. of Goldman Sachs or not like who Mm. knows really but it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Mm. I do also think that chief execs have to kind of toe the line between keeping shareholders happy and also keeping customers happy and when I say happy I'm not just talking about the sort of products and services they're offering. In this day and age you really can't hide anything about you as a person from your consumers and the people that are engaging with your company. If people have a vested interest in your organisation or the sector that you work in, they're going to look into the leadership of that organisation. And I think there's this sort of increasing need for leaders to not only be extremely visible, but also be very relatable and sort of unproblematic, Um, you know, lest you, you know, concur that the wrath of the general public. And those opinions do matter. I think this is something that we're seeing a lot more now. And we've seen we've seen what can happen when customers really put their mind to something when it comes to a particular organisation. So I don't think that chief execs can really dismiss the power that their personality has. It's interesting, though, because I guess one argument, and I definitely saw um, people mention this, is that it could be seen to soften his public image and perhaps having someone who's got a bit more of a human face and a bit more kind of relatable in that sense wouldn't necessarily go against you. So I am interested in that kind Mm -hmm. of idea about things sort of hinging on performance. And I mentioned in the piece the idea that perhaps his kind of DJing had sort of become a bit of like a lightning rod for criticism Mm -hmm. amid kind of wider um, problems or challenges that Goldman was facing. Freeburn said that kind of the two criteria by which a CEO side gig should be judged as acceptable or not are whether it affects a leader's ability to do their day job and the impact of any negative publicity. And viewed through this prism, he kind of felt that Solomon made the smart move, but he regretted that the world, as he put it, had put him in that position. And he said, genuinely, do I think that what he was doing would have had any impact on the bank or his performance? Absolutely, categorically not. But is being a DJ something that you would associate with the man leading Goldman? And he said no. And that this kind of incongruity makes it an easy joke. And that's, to quote him, too good a gift to give the competition. Mm. I think it just goes to show that the world is not ready for a DJing chief exec. (laughs) (laughs) Now, for our second piece, we're looking at the benefits of being bold. Ailish, please explain. Yes. So we often hear the phrase, if you don't ask, you don't get. And this phrase has never been more true in regards to some new, a new piece of research from Right Management. And according to its survey of more than 2,000 employees and managers, 28% of UK leaders say that they make decisions about who to promote in their organisations based simply upon whether somebody has asked for a promotion or not. 26% say they decide who to promote based on whether they think the person in question will fit in. And a further 16% make those decisions based on their gut instincts. But a larger percentage, 57% of leaders say that they do rely 
on data about people's skills and abilities when they are deciding who to promote. Um, but interestingly, they do also point to loyalty to the company and then longevity of service. That also helps people's chances of getting a promotion. 29% of leaders base their decision on the number of years somebody has worked at the company. This is then even higher at 42% for the sole leaders of a business, so chief executives, founders and business owners. But there is a little bit of a disconnect between leaders and employees um, on this topic. 18% of employees say that they don't actually know how to go about advancing their careers, while 24% say that they need greater clarity around what they need to do to progress um, to help them gain a promotion. Um, and 22% of employees also believe that in order to get promotion, it's a case of who you know rather than what you know. So there's a real communication and trust issue at play here. Leaders are not actively advising employees on what they need to be doing to put them in good stead of getting a promotion, whilst employers are distrustful of the methods that leaders used to promote people. And Lorraine Mills, who's a principal consultant at Right Management, says that while asking for a promotion might not guarantee anything, it will increase your chances. She says, Leaders need to make sure their methods for deciding who to promote and develop are transparent and evidence-based. It's also important they nip potential issues in the bud by addressing any misperceptions in their workplace about how employees are promoted. Um, she also says that the way leaders promote employees needs to be, quote, grounded in an inclusive and honest culture, unquote. For example, line managers need to make necessary information readily available in order to avoid any doubt about the promotion process. I thought it was interesting that initial stat about um, you gave about 28% of leaders making the decision to promote people um, based on, you know, simply whether they've put themselves forward. And it's interesting because on the one hand, you know, putting yourself forward could be taken as an indication of your drive. And also perhaps just at a more basic level that you actually want to step up and take on more responsibility. I think, though, on the part of managers, they need to temper this kind of line of thinking with an awareness about the impact of sort of imposter syndrome on their staff. So someone who's perfectly capable and possibly even the best choice for a role might not necessarily put themselves forward just because of that sort of self-doubt that we all kind of have to do battle with. And like I said, that's sort of partly an internal thing that we all kind of need to address. But then I think that leaders also need to be kind of cognizant of that. Otherwise, they potentially could lose out on the best candidate. You could almost argue that perhaps leaders don't necessarily always have the bandwidth to be like thinking about these sort of psychological things that might be going on beneath the surface. Mm. But I also think that there are people who perhaps have those skills and just simply don't want to. They're quite, you know, they, they don't want to move up. They're quite happy doing what they do. And they don't really have perhaps at, at this particular moment in their career enough of an interest to climb the ladder. Perhaps they're coming towards the end of their career and they're possibly thinking about retirement. They're not thinking about the next step on the career ladder. They feel like they've probably hit that ceiling for them already. Yeah, I guess there could be so many different factors at play. You know, if someone's kind of feels like they're developing themselves quite well in their role and they're sort of feeling like it's kind of pushing them, but they're like enjoying that challenge. They don't necessarily want to be kind of thrust into another position. But um, 
yeah, it's really interesting. And I guess that's kind of the whole dynamic we often talk about accidental managers. Quite a lot of people who find themselves in a management position who never kind of really aspired to leading people and managing people. Yes, it's all very well and good seeking out people, headhunting people to promote. But once you promote them to that level, what training are you offering them? Are you just, you know, promoting them to that level and then letting them do it, because leaving them to it because you think that they inherently have the skills to do it but there is especially if you're promoting somebody to a sort of middle management role that has a whole separate skill set in and of itself so it's 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 not just this sort of two parts to it there's two stages it's the promotion but then it's the support once they get to that position yeah definitely now if you remember two weeks ago we talked about the case of elizabeth wilson she was the senior manager who took her employer the financial conduct authority to an employment tribunal after it rejected her application to work from home full time. One of the things that kind of struck me about that case is that we often expect senior staff to lead by example. And I kind of wondered how big a consideration this was for Wilson's employer, if indeed one at all. Last year, we saw many companies continue to kind of introduce or increase mandatory office days. And in some cases, we did see more stringent requirements placed on senior leaders. So JP Morgan Chase was an example of this. In a memo sent to staff last April, the bank's operating committee said that its leaders, quote unquote, play a critical role in reinforcing our culture and running our businesses. The memo continued. They have to be visible on the floor. They must meet with clients. They need to teach and advise, and they should always be accessible for immediate feedback and impromptu meetings. We need them to lead by example, which is why we're asking all managing directors to be in the office five days a week. I wondered how prevalent this attitude is in the context of many businesses returning to more office time. Is it fair to expect senior staff to lead the charge? Or are they equally entitled to enjoy the benefits afforded by working from home? Some might argue that years of climbing the greasy pole should entitle you to certain rewards, not least trust, but perhaps also a bit more freedom to make work kind of work for you. So we put the question to CEOs and the answers are in. Ed Johnson, he's the CEO and co-founder of Pushfar, said, I firmly believe that senior staff must set the example when it comes to spending time in the office. Leadership is about more than just issuing directives. It involves embodying the values and work ethic expected of the entire team. If senior leaders prioritise a healthy work-life balance and demonstrate a commitment to being present in the office, it sends a powerful message to the entire organisation that they should do the same. Expecting employees to adhere to rules and expectations that senior leaders themselves don't follow is not only hypocritical, but undermines the credibility of the entire leadership team. Quite a few CEOs, it has to be said, were firmly of the view that senior staff do have to lead by example. They kind of variously highlighted the danger of a kind of attitude developing of there being one rule for us and another rule for them and also some of the benefits for junior employees of working in proximity to their managers. Some CEOs did take a more nuanced view, and again, battle lines in the hybrid debate were kind of really in evidence in the spectrum of responses. So Tom Laranjo, he's the CEO of independent media agency, Total Media, he comes into the office every day and come what may. I do this, he said, because I feel a real benefit and gain energy from being around my colleagues, and because I like and embrace a separation between work and home. The one reason I don't come into work every day is to be an example. He continued, The opportunities that hybrid working offers our business in supporting a diverse, equitable and dynamic workforce are immense. 
I would never evangelise about return to the inflexibility of everyone having to be in the office full time. In advertising, being together physically is an immense benefit and we provide a creative, fun and valuable experience, but this does not diminish the value of flexibility inherent in a hybrid working model. I think what chief execs, leaders who advocate for this return to work, they need to also be aware of what environment are you providing for your employees? What package are you giving them? You know, they come into the office, what are they then going to get as a result of that? If they come in and the culture that you've created in the office is not one that is going to be conducive to a good working day, then really they're not going to feel the benefit of it as well. So there needs to be, you need to work on your office culture, I think, before you demand everyone comes back in, especially if one of the reasons why people don't want to go in is because they don't particularly like being in the office and they realise now that they actually prefer working from home. Try and understand why that might be. Get to the root of the issue. Um, And if it is to do with culture, then that's something you need to be working on. You need to be offering them. There needs to be a lot of, you know, there needs to be some real tangible benefits other than the usual You know, it's all about collaboration. We can collaborate with technology. People have been doing it for years. What what is it specifically to do with the office environment that is going to entice people back? That's a good point. And it's something that Kelly Tucker, CEO of HR Star, kind of touched upon. She said that senior staff members play a crucial role in shaping the workplace culture. And one effective way they can lead is by setting an example through spending time in the office. By dedicating themselves to the physical workspace, they establish a model of commitment and diligence for the entire team. So, I mean, there's that point about culture, but then she's also going on to the kind of point about leading by example as well. She says, for junior employees, the accessibility of experienced leaders provides a valuable resource and helps contribute to their professional development. This aligns with the idea that leadership is not just about delegation, but also about being present to guide and support when needed. Senior staff members' presence in the office also sends a powerful message that everyone, regardless of their position, is accountable for their time and responsibilities. She does kind of caveat that a little bit at the end. She says, that said, it is crucial to recognise the changing dynamics of the modern workplace. An organisation should also consider accommodating different work styles to promote inclusivity and adaptability. Striking a balance between office presence and an emphasis on results and productivity is essential in ensuring a flexible and effective work environment. Mm. I mean, there really is no kind of hard and fast rule, is there? It really does depend on what works for each organisation. And um, and there's a lot of pressure for leaders to make a definitive decision. Um, but one thing they can do is read Management Today's um, The Big Divide articles, which is a series of articles that discuss this work from home debate and offer some chief execs advice on what to do. So head on over to our website and um, read up on some articles about this. Great. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. Find us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.